How many of you would rather be a winner than a loser? Pretty easy question, right? We all want to be winners, and if you know me, you know I'm kind of competitive. I don't like to lose at anything. And uh, this, from, this is all of us, all of humanity. We want to be winners from the schoolyard basketball team as you're getting first, second, third pick to the NBA, how to form a winning team. You want to get winners on your team. You want to have a, a winning coach, not just a coach who is good, but who has a track record of winning over and over and over again. You want someone with the, the Midas touch in your workplaces, in your communities. We want winners, not losers. Or as Queen says, no time for losers, as we are the champions of the world. Was there any place in the church for losers, for failures? In our passage this morning, we see someone who is a colossal failure. I mean, a loser in some of the greatest senses of the word. We see this colossal failure of Peter, who seemed to be the most determined disciple of all. But in his pride, he comes crashing down and denies his master, not once, not twice, but three times. But we also see in this passage a contrast. We see the failure of Peter contrasted with the faithfulness of Jesus. Where Peter fails, Jesus succeeds. We're going to spend our morning together looking at Peter's denial, his failure in verses 15 to 27. We'll see, I want, to, I want you to see three truths, three truths about this denial. Peter's denial, its quickness, its contrast, and its plan or its design. The quickness of his denial, the contrast of Peter's denial and its plan. So look first with me at the quickness of Peter's denial in verses 15 through 18. Mainly what what we want to see here is the, the ease with which Peter falls into sin despite his previous zeal, determination to be with Jesus. Just how quick Peter falls. We see here that there's another disciple. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple that's not named. It's really interesting. We're not sure who this disciple is. Some think that it's one that's been spoken about previously, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, Some relate that to being John himself. Others say, well, no, since he knew the high priest, it probably wasn't John. He was just a, a fisherman. It must have been some other disciple, maybe Nicodemus or some other who who was more well-known. But John doesn't give us that information. The author doesn't tell us. And so I I think what he's doing there, he's keeping our focus on the other characters in the story, Peter and Jesus. But this is how Peter gets into the courtyard. This other disciple was known to the high priest. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So this other disciple, who was known to the high priest, brings in Peter after speaking to the servant girl who brought him in. Possibly, I guess another reason he may have mentioned this other disciple in this way is yet another contrast. 
this disciple is known as a disciple, and yet he, he freely walks in, not fearing uh, any charges, not fearing arrest, and yet Peter is very afraid. We see the servant girl's question. She asks, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Notice how she puts the question. It's almost a leading question. She doesn't say, are you one of his disciples? Of open-ended, it's more she's leading him towards, surely you're not one of this man's disciples also. An expected answer is no. And Peter answers simply enough, I am not. You wonder if he figured this would be the end of it, of the questioning he would have to face. I'll just, this is just temporary. I'm not really denying Jesus. I just want to kind of sneak in. I'll be quiet. I'll watch the proceedings. And this will be the end of it. This will be it. Just a very simple reply, I'm not. Maybe, maybe very quietly. Think about all these things tied together. Peter's, first Peter's zeal. He was the one who had proclaimed, even if I have to go to the grave with you, to death with you, I will never desert you. Just a few moments ago in the garden, he's the one that whipped out the sword and cut off a guard's ear. He's the one ready to go down in flames, ready to fight with all that he's got to defend Jesus, to be with him. Peter has great zealousness for Jesus. Great confidence in his own abilities to stay with Jesus. That combined with a a simple servant girl's question was enough to reduce him to denying his very master. How easily, how quickly Peter denies Jesus. In this scene, Peter goes from following Jesus. Notice that in verse 15. He and this other disciple followed Jesus to verse 18 where he is seen being with Jesus. These servants and officials warming themselves by the fire. We should consider how easily our prideful zeal, even even zeal that looks good, how, how easily our prideful zeal is reduced to nothing. Maybe you've recognized this in your own life. As a humorous, somewhat humorous example, I remember being a teenage, teenager in my backyard and there was a vicious dog about two yards away, barking, looking at me, growling and barking. I was like, I'm not playing that. I'm not having that. So I started kind of walking towards him like, what? What do you want? And do you know what the dog did? He tore off running straight at me. <laughs> Angry, running straight at me. So I ran... I got on the deck, I got a baseball bat, and I went out there ready to to do some damage. And then he ran away. But I was nothing without the baseball bat. I got really frightened. I I was zealous, I was proud and arrogant in that confrontation, and quickly I was reduced to nothing, running away. Calvin says, certainly all the strength that appears to be in men is smoke, which a breath immediately drives away. When we are out of the battle, we are too courageous. But experience shows that our lofty talk is foolish and groundless. He goes on, Let us therefore learn to not be brave in any area other than the Lord. We should be careful in assessing our own abilities, our own zeal, our own determination, dedication 
to Jesus? How many of us have thought, if I had been there, I would not have denied Jesus? If it had been me, I would have stood firm. And are we not saying the very thing Peter was saying moments before? Consider, friends, when it comes to facing dangers from identifying with Jesus, our own weakness, how quickly and easily we can tend to shy away from identifying with Jesus, maybe in situations in which it would be unpopular to make a certain stand with some group or another. In situations where we don't outright deny Jesus, but we want to be a little shy and avoid any sort of confrontation with being identified with Jesus. What about when it comes to facing the temptations of your sin? Do you ever have the attitude that you are strong enough to fight against certain temptations to sin? And then the next moment you find that you have fallen into that very sin of anger, of impatience, of gossip, of self-righteous judgment towards others, of lust, or consider not just sins of commission, but also sins of omission. How easily the opportunity slips by for you to do some good to a brother or sister, and you let it slide. How you have an opportunity to speak the gospel to someone, and you let it pass. You have a zeal to do those things which you know would be good and glorious to God, and yet some trifle comes up, and you are fall quickly away from your, what you had intended. Or when it comes to other earthly pursuits, consider your own zeal and determination for your business, for your career, your vocation. How you know what you know you can do it. You know you can go forward and make progress. And yet we're reminded in hum, of our own humility and inability to carry out those things which we would like to do. As James says, come you who say you will do this or that in the next year. What is your life? Rather, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Consider the benefits of humility in all of these things. And Peter's example of his failure here. How it brings us to dependence upon God for everything. How we cannot stand with self-confidence on our own and say, I will do this, I will face this, I will identify with Christ no matter the cost. Rather, we must be brought in humility before God and say, I'm completely dependent upon you for your grace. If I am going to fight against this sin, if I am going to do anything, this or that, if I am going to stand with Jesus, it will be completely dependent upon the grace of God in me. We see the quickness of Peter's denial and how we, in many ways, are like him. We also see the contrast of Peter's denial in verses 19 to 24. Notice in these verses the boldness of Jesus in the face of a similar interrogation. The boldness of Jesus in confessing the truth of who he is. So the high priest questions him really this is Annas we're told in verse 13 the father-in-law of the high priest perhaps in the same building or facility 
as Caiaphas, the high priest, and he questions Jesus about his own disciples and his teaching. Is he a false teacher? Is he a threat to the faith that we have? Is he a threat to the religious establishment? Is he worthy of death? Is what he has been saying in this group he's been gathering together, does this make him worthy of dying? Really, Annas treats him as a false prophet and as a threat to Moses and the law. But in reality, he is the fulfillment of all of these things. Notice Jesus' answer. First, he testifies about himself. Verse 20 and following. I have spoken openly to the world. It's been put out there to everyone. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Everything that... I've done, Jesus says, from the the first of my ministry to the very end of my ministry, as nothing's been in secret. It's been laid bare for everyone to see. He is rejecting the idea that he is some sort of conspirator, gathering together a group of, of false disciples. Rather, he hasn't shied away in fear. Everyone knows what he has been about. And so he's says, ask those who have heard my teaching. Why are you asking me these things? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. This would probably include Annas, as well as the other Pharisees and Jews, Jewish leaders. Ask those who have heard me. In this way, Jesus seems to be asking for a fair trial. Why are you asking me these things? If you want to interrogate me, let's have a trial with witnesses who actually heard the things that I've said from day one. Of course, an officer takes umbrage at Jesus' response, have a little respect, and he hits him. And this foreshadows the treatment Jesus will continue to receive at the hands of his opponents. He already has spoken about this treatment that he would receive. And yet, even then, Jesus responds with truth, boldly, confessing that he is the truth. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? We notice this contrast with Peter. Peter trembles like a leaf at the question of a servant girl. And Jesus stands before this man like an oak, strong, unwilling to give. Peter hides everything. He lies. Jesus brings everything out into the open and speaks only that which is true. Notice this contrast also between Peter's words and Jesus' words throughout the book of John. Peter issues simple words, I am not, resembling in some ways the the response of Jesus throughout John. "I, I am the bread of life. He had spoken it openly. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. And Peter says, I am not. He is the Lord. And he is speaking the truth of who he is. And this applies to us in a related way to the the last point which we saw. Here, we see the righteousness, the truthfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as he stands before a man of power 
and doesn't shy away from speaking the truth. We see the confidence of Christ. We see his boldness. We see his righteousness, which ultimately is applied to us in the gospel, in the, applied to our account by the Holy Spirit. See, in salvation, there is this great exchange which takes place. The big word we use for it is imputation. We are like Peter. We, we are failures. We are losers. We sin against God day after day, and we were destined for eternity separated from God under his wrath. And yet Jesus is faithful. He is the righteous one. He always spoke truth every minute of every day. Everything he ever said was true. And yet when he was raised up on the cross, he took all of our guilt, all of our shame upon his own shoulders. Our, our sin, the ugliness of our sin, the, the seriousness of our sin was placed upon him and in exchange for everyone who comes to faith in Jesus, who relies in Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, it is credited to your account his own righteousness. It's, God looks upon you in this exchange as though you had always said everything true every day of your life. And it brings him joy to look upon you in that way because of Christ. When the Lord looks at you through the lens of Jesus, he sees righteousness as though you had every, done everything right your whole life. He's filled with joy at those who are his as he looks upon them through the lens of Jesus Christ. And not only that, brothers and sisters, it, it's not only, it's, it's not a fiction. It, it is an, an imputation. And then by his Holy Spirit, he is working this into us. This truth-speaking sort of, of mindset, sort of heart, where we begin to speak truth. We, we begin to now have confidence to identify with Christ not in our own strength, but in the Spirit who indwells within us. He is carving away, He is tearing away all falsehood in us and adding to us the mind of Christ. Another application in this passage is that we are warned of the hostility we will face as we identify with Christ. As Jesus has already said to His disciples, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. If the world persecutes me, they're going to persecute you as well. We see the hostility turn toward Christ as he speaks truth. And we can be sure that as we speak truth, as we stand for truth, we too will face similar hostilities. We've seen the quickness of Peter's denial. We've seen the contrast of, of that denial in Christ. And we rejoice at the faithfulness of Christ but also notice in verses 25 to 27 that this is a part of God's design. We see that this, this is a part of God's plan. We see the plan of Peter's denial. The main thing I want you to see here is how our sin is somehow and mysteriously included in the plan of God. He's not thrown off because of it. Rather, our sin is ordained in the plan of God. Verse 25 repeats verse 18. We return to the scene of Peter warming himself by the fire. And the servants and the officers ask the same question as the girl. It's put in the same way. You're not one of his disciples, 
are you? He responds similarly again and says, I am not. He denies it and says, I am not. Now, Peter should have been ashamed of his first denial, right? He, he would have had a little bit of time to be thinking about this, internalizing it. What did I just do? I just said I'm not Jesus' disciple? And that should have promoted a, a sort of shame, a sort of sadness in him, a sort of humility. But he does it again. and So he should have been ashamed even more so of this second denial so that he would repent and have courage. But the more he denied Christ, the more it's almost like he made it a habit. Now he couldn't stop. It 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 had a hardening effect on him, which all sin does. As one commentator says, if each of these servants and officers in turn had asked Peter, he would not have hesitated to deny his master a thousand times. There's an eyewitness, though. And he asks a more direct question question different than the other questions notice what he asks he's a relative of the man whose ear peter had cut off did i not see you in the garden with him this is a different sort of question it's a more direct question it demands thought it demands an answer did i not see you in the garden he could have said weren't you the guy with the sword who cut off my relative's ear. I saw you in the garden. Were you not that one? And yet, Peter still can't bring himself to answer it, yet denies it once again, and at once, we are told, a rooster crows. And that takes us back to chapter 13, verse 38, where this is exactly what Jesus had predicted, what Jesus had said would predict. Will you surely lay down your life for me, Peter? No, but you will deny me three times before a rooster crows. Jesus had predicted this, and things were going just as they had been planned. This wasn't just a prediction of Jesus. This is a part of the the plan, the design, the ordination of God. God is in the details. Because if you don't get the details right, you don't get the end result right. To get the end result right, you have to get all the details right in the middle. Or else it all falls apart. Maybe you've seen the movie National Treasure. Uh, it's a, an enjoyable movie. I don't know if you, you know it. Some of my favorite movies are those where you have a certain plot where everything has to happen just right or the whole plan fails. So in this movie Nicolas Cage plays a an Indiana Jones like character and the plan is to break into the national archives and steal the declaration of the independent uh, the declaration of independence it's interesting to see all the detailed steps that you they have to go through they've got to do this at the right time they've got to do this at the right time everything has to line up perfectly or the whole thing will collapse Well, when it comes to God's plan, none of those variables are outside of his control. There's no threat that God might somehow miss a detail here or there and the whole plan falls apart. God is absolutely sovereign in all of this situation. 
You see, while Peter is an utter failure, God does not fail. He always succeeds. He always gets his goal. He always gets what he wants. Even when it seems mysterious, God is sovereign over all these events. These events are of the utmost importance, having to deal with his own son and the salvation of his people. Peter's denial is not outside of God's control, not outside of God's plan, not outside of God's ordination. And this is mysterious because what we're saying ultimately is even our sin is taken into account in the plan of God. And not just taken into account. It is ordained by God. But we want to be careful about what we mean when we say that. We're not saying that our sin is justified. We're not saying that we should sin. This is not an excuse for our sin. This doesn't take away our responsibility to fight against sin, to reject sin. It does not justify our sin. Neither does it make God the author of sin. Uh, The chief example would be what? The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the greatest sin in all of history as he was denied and rejected and betrayed and beaten and mocked and scorned and raised up on a cross, the Lord of glory hanging on a cross in a shameful death for sinners. And this was the definite, ordained plan of God. As John Piper has written a book about these spectacular sins, as he calls them. Some of the greatest sins in all of human history, and yes, they were ordained by God. And yet, we do not neglect our own soul and personal responsibility in these real choices that we make. One commentator reminds us there is nothing better for us than to be early on our guard that he who is tempted by Satan, while he is yet uncorrupted, may not allow himself the smallest indulgence. In other words, fight sin at the very smallest sign of it, this very smallest temptation. Begin fighting to the death against sin. Don't let it gain a foothold on you. Fight against sin and beware of this, the hardening effect of sin. But the sovereignty of God in the midst of all of this leads us again in humility to trust in Him. The the right response is not to say, oh, God is in charge of everything, so if I sin, it doesn't matter and there's, there's grace for me when I sin. The right response is humility, bowing down before him and saying, Lord, please, I am utterly dependent upon you to fight against sin, to to identify with Christ, to live for your glory. I have nothing in and of myself. Everything I have that is good has come from you. So we return to the question then, is there room for failures in the church? Is there room for losers in the church? And it turns out that's all there is room for, right? Because every one of us who are Christians who have proclaimed Christ, the very first step we took when we became a Christian was admitting I am a complete and utter failure when it comes to righteousness before God. I bring nothing in my hands, only I'm ready to receive the grace that I need from you. 
as terrible as Peter's sin was, and it was terrible, denying his master, we know ultimately he would be restored. He would be restored by, in in a sense, through his own denying Jesus, which would ultimately lead Jesus to the cross to die for his sin, to redeem Peter. He is restored in love. Each one of us have admitted our own failings before God and come to him humbly asking for him to save us by his grace and by his grace alone. And therefore we we are turned now as we seek to live by faith and live by grace and live by the Holy Spirit, we are moved yet again to humility. And we're reminded by Paul's example as he speaks about his own weakness, as he speaks about his own failures, as he speaks about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He asked the Lord to remove it, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. What's his response to these things? Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let me encourage you then, brothers. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let us pray again.